Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more on Instagram at Christ Chapel College. I'll go first. Okay. Uh, yeah, my name is Ryan McCarthy, and I've been on staff at Christ Chapel for 27 years. I, I, next year, I get free dentures, uh, part of the plan. Um, I was a freshman at TCU, actually, when I came to Christ. Before that, I was a, a really loud atheist. I loved debating with people and um, very, you know, also doing drugs on the, on the side. And... I basically had one conversation with a trumpet player in the marching band. I was, I played drums and yeah, I'm still proud. <clears throat> but he basically got through to me with, with a couple things and just left me with the thought that it's possible I could be wrong about it. And he convinced me to say one prayer, which was, God, if you exist, if you're, you know, Jesus, the son of God, would you reveal that to me? And, and I just remember I prayed that, nothing happened. But a month later, I went up to KU to visit some of my friends where I did some shrooms, because what else do you do at KU? <sighs> Sorry, KU. Um, and I had my first bad mushroom trip that night. And basically, long story short, because this could be a really long story, I was at a point where I was ready to take my life. I mean, it was, it was terrifying. And I was 30 minutes into this trip. It's supposed to last six hours. And I remember realizing if I killed myself, I knew I was going to hell. And I realized it was because I had chosen this, not consciously, but I, had, I realized at that moment that the God that I claimed I didn't believe in was actually just the God that I hated. And I basically said, thought 
Lord, please save me. I can't handle another five minutes of this. Please save me. And immediately he sobered me. It was like he turned on the lights in a dark room, no battle between the demonic and him. It was, I was awestruck and I haven't struggled with sin since. I'm kidding about that part. Um, but I, you know, that was the last time I did shrooms for sure. And um, uh, there's more to the story, but I'll stop there. I mean, yeah. Amen. Let's dismiss. At the 9 a.m., he pointed out that that was three weeks ago. Yeah, it was three weeks ago. Just kidding. Amy, um, have you done shrooms? There are no shrooms in my story. None none at all. Um, So my name's Amy. I work here. My office is actually right behind that white wall. So if you have other questions, I'm I'm here most of the time. I'd love to meet you. Um, My story's so different than Ryan's. You know, I started a relationship with God when I was a little bitty girl, three, four, five years old. Um, And that was an easy choice for me because it was the way my family lived. It wasn't a habit. It, It was, they lived in relationship with God and they lived that in front of me all the time. So it was a gentle, easy transition for me. And so that meant from from little earliest years, just kind of learning to get to know God, learning to include him in my life, learning to trust him. Like any of you, I could say my life has had seasons that were really sweet and beautiful. And there have been some seasons that have been really hard and tough and challenging. And so it's just been going through all those seasons again, kind of receiving those things as invitations. Okay, how do I learn about God in this new experience? And how do I learn to trust God in this new experience? And I could go on and write a book too, but kind of the way I would summarize all of that is all that I knew about God in each experience, he showed me more. In each experience, he showed me he was bigger than I thought. He was more loving. He was more gracious. He was more capable. So it's just been this lifetime journey of continuing to learn who God is, and he continues to show me. I would say the first half of my life, I really thought of my life with God as very personal, just me and just God, Um, and and perhaps very self-referential, self-centered maybe. And then the second half of my life has been this process of God kind of turning me out towards others and letting me see, you know, my life with him is about him and it's about me, but it's for others also and, and helping me understand that's part of why I'm in the world. So that was a professional shift for me. I started teaching women the Bible um, and went on the staff with the church as a minister to women. And then God started shifting my heart a little bit more and not just focusing me on all of the other people, but he started really focusing me on the youngest adult population. Um, And, you know, the great opportunity to speak into people's lives and help them learn to follow God at the beginning of their adult years. And that's really how I landed here, Um, left the big church across the street that we're connected to, uh, to work with y'all. I have life outside of here, too, though. I've got three sons. They're grown and living all over the world. And I've got two daughters-in-law. I've waited a long time to have girls in my family. And late in life, God brought me a wonderful husband named Greg, who's a gift to me. And Greg bought, brought golden retrievers into my life, too. So all is good. Greg kind of is a golden retriever. Kind of is, yeah. yes. Um, I love that. I love that they get to know you. And, and y'all have both been impactful in my life. Amy. I feel like, too, you've added so much value to our team just teaching. And last semester, you uh, you taught on the church at the Discipleship Project, which, by the way, if you don't know what the Discipleship Project is, you should join. It's after spring break. 
Amy's going to be teaching that. It is awesome. Um, but last semester you taught on the church, what it is, how to be involved. Can you just talk to us more about that? Like why, obviously we're gathered here on a Sunday morning when we could be at brunch, um, but we chose to be here. Um, why is it important to be involved in a local church, commit to one, the whole thing? Yeah, I love that question because I love the church. Um, so, you know, if, if we believe that God's word is true, at the very beginning, he tells us he's the one who created everything. And everything he creates, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And the first time God says it's not good is it's not good for man to be alone. And he created us. It's, it's in our makeup and our design that we're supposed to be in relationships. We're supposed to be in a relationship with God, and we're supposed to be in relationships with other people. And, and he repeats that message. He'll, he'll say in Proverbs, it's not good for a man to be alone. When he falls, there's no one to help him up. So that's just a, a message to us about how God made us. But the interesting thing is when God calls people into relationship with himself, he calls all those people together the family of God. And he calls all the different people brothers and sisters. And he's communicating to us that when we follow God, we are now connected to all the other followers of God. We are like brothers and sisters. And he has a purpose for us when we come together um, that's, that's beyond just the, in case you fall down, somebody will help you up. One of his purposes for the church is that we're all helping one another grow and mature and get strength. Um, and so when we come together, that's what we do. We're singing words together to encourage each other that we believe these things. Um, when we come together in the church, the person who's new and immature in their life with God, maybe they're going to be in, um, encouraged or taught by someone who's further along. The person who's grieving and struggling, they're going to be encouraged by the person who can stand beside them. Um, we actually get better when we're together. This is also the place where we can say, hey, I see this thing in your life, and I don't really think it looks like wholeness or goodness or life. Can we talk about that? So part of God's purpose for us as we live in relationship with him is that we are related to each other and we live that way. He says in Hebrews 10, don't stop assembling together. He, he wants us to keep doing this thing that we call church together. I love that. It's really good. Um, Ryan, I'd love for you to kind of go from there. We are Christ Chapel Bible Church, so we gather to study the Word of God and, um, and interact with it, and we are in it all the time. We preach through books of the Bible. Why is this so important? Why is it important that we're in it and that we're sitting under its teaching? Um, kind of take that conversation wherever you will. Sure. Um, I would say... Um from the perspective of someone who does, I do a lot of marriage counseling and marriage ministry. And one of the most common things that bring people to a place where it's like, we need counseling is a breakdown of communication. It's just hard for people, uh, especially in a marriage context, which I, I will answer your question here, but is it's, it's so hard for people to either listen well or speak well. Like uh, listening just... <laughs> Basically, hearing your spouse and then actually articulating what's going on in my life and communicating that, that breakdown of communication is one of the most common struggles in the most intimate relationship we see here, but it's exactly the same, I think, in our relationship with God. We're called to communicate with him, and a lot of times we start off just thinking, well, I need to pray more, I need to pray, but how do you, how do you pray to a God who knows what you're going to say before you even say it? I mean, how, how do you talk to someone who, uh, it's just sometimes it's like shooting up flares, 
Well, he's spoken to us. He's said everything he needs to say to us in his word. He's spoken, but he continues to speak through us. If you think of the Bible, as, it's like the language of the Holy Spirit, that when you sit at his feet, you're reading, and, and your posture is, these are your words. Like, allow me to hear from you. You're basically, imagine being married and saying, all right, honey, I want to hear from you. I want to talk to me. And he's willing. He talks to us. And it's... It's not a place to get like a checklist of these are the things I'm not supposed to do. Or these are the things I'm supposed to do. Those things show up, but it's really he reveals who he is. He reveals his heart. You see these themes and there's a story going on. And uh, it's exciting. The more I study God's word, the more I'm excited that I get to study the word of God for the rest of my life. I think Psalm 1 would be a good place to go just to get an image of there's so many things to say. Um, but Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So that's a lot, right? Delighting in God's word, meditating on it day and night. And then it says he's like a tree planted by the water. Uh, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I mean, you couldn't give a more beautiful picture of flourishing and growth and joy and wisdom, fullness. You're, you're going to bear fruit in, its, in, in the season. I, I'm, I'm going to start preaching, I suppose. Um, but it's such a blessing to be drinking deep of the word of God. And, but if you approach it as this is just communication with God. Can, study the Bible. can I interject? Yeah. Yeah, Amy course. is one of the best teachers at Christ Chapel, so you'd be a fool. I'm calling you a fool if you don't sign up for the discipleship project, right? No, no. Seriously, though, it's just she is one of the uh, most uh, clear and biblically you tether yourself to the Bible when you speak. And so, yeah, definitely sign up for that. Thank you. Uh, pay me later. Thanks. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, he, he, he hit it. I mean, our, our temptation is always to turn our relationship with God into religion, to turn it into just a religion that we just practice. And so what we always have to remember is this: it's not religion, this is a relationship. And so it's just not hard for us to think about how we like our relationships to go. I want to talk to someone, I want them to talk back to me. And so why do we read the Bible? Because God says, these are my words for you. If, if, he, if he came here and put skin on and sat down with us, the words in this book are the words that he would say, and he says they're all profitable and useful for us. Um, in, in a world where even the very definition of truth is changing all the time and right and wrong is changing all the time, hey, that creates instability. If we can sit down with God and let him tell us things, he tells us this is truth and it doesn't change. This is solid and you can count on it. So, so the biggest reason we're going to read the Bible is so we can just listen to God and know him and be in this relationship with him. And the beautiful thing is you don't need a, a pastor to tell you what the word of God says. You don't need a book to tell you. You can learn how to sit down for yourself and read and find God's meaning and find God's truth that he's written for you. So come to Discipleship Project. We'll start March 19th. We're going to do four weeks on how to study the Bible. It's so interesting. We, don't, we didn't plan what we were going to say, right? You just gave this contrast of there's so many different teachings. And Psalm 1 
contrasts a person delighting in the word. He's like a tree. What's more solid than a deeply rooted tree? Verse 4 says, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff is that skin around a, like imagine the skin around a peanut. <laughs> it's just useless and it gets blown around by the wind. And if you're not rooted in the word of God, you will attach yourself to the latest trend. Whatever it is, that the latest thing that is being said by your latest professor uh, or your friends, it's, you, you're rootless. And we need, we need people who are rooted in truth. That's really good. I love that. And I feel like so often my desire is to be rooted in this. Um, and I feel like this is true even now, but particularly when I first started following Jesus, this was a question that I asked a lot. And I know I've had many conversations around this, but I'm reading this, and this is all about how to live and things that are going to promote wholeness and how to look like Jesus. But then I think about my life, and I'm like, okay, this is also telling me not to do certain things. And those certain things are actually fun. Like my sin, all, whatever it is, is actually kind of fun to me. Why should I, why should I not sin? Like it, it's bringing me life or joy is kind of where I'm at. Um, can you talk about that for us? Like my sin is fun. Why should I stop? I'm glad you're saying that. And sin is fun. I mean, like, there would be no appeal to it if it weren't immediately uh, gratifying on some level. But the problem is the one who made us knows that he knows the way to life. He knows the way to joy. And we could look at this in so many other areas of life. I mean, I look around, I see a bunch of pretty healthy people. You didn't get healthy by, like, sitting around binge-watching shows and, and eating pizza all day. There's probably some value, like, I need to get up and move my body and eat, you know, fairly healthy. There's good things usually come with a with an uphill battle and and you find joy in that battle when you start walking that path but sin one way to say it this is not a good comprehensive definition of sin but it's it's a shortcut to good it's it's an illegitimate way to a quick fix of of um you know a better definition of sin is building your life on anything other than god really but just to say, we have desires given by God, and sin comes along and says, hey, you don't need to trust this, trust God. Here's a way to, 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 to meet your needs, and it's usually quick and attractive and produces a lot of shame, regret, pain. It makes me think of John 10.10, 10. the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus says, but I've come life that they might have it abundantly. He wants to give us abundant life uh, against the backdrop of a lot of really fun temptation. Yeah, I'd say uh, ten, we, we, we are often tempted in, in the same categories. Um, and we've just talked about, you know, we have these voids in our life that we want to fill. The voids tend to generally be in the same category. So there's the category of value and worth. I want to feel valuable and important. So maybe the, the temptation then is to diminish other people or to overachieve and strive and accomplish the, in an overwhelming way. So value and worth, that can be a void, esteem and affection, and that's I want to be liked, I want to be loved, I want to be important. And so we can sin in ways that give us the instant group of friends or the instant sense of being loved. Um, a third way is comfort 
or ease or security. I, w I want it to be comfortable and easy, so maybe I'll cut corners or do something I'm not supposed to do to get there easy. And then I think a fourth category is just pleasure, you know, sensory pleasure. I want to feel good. And we've got the obvious temptations there of, you know, the numbing effects um, or the exhilarating effects of drugs or alcohol or sex. Um, the thing that we have to pay attention to is all of all of those are God-given needs in us, you know, and we just need to trust in God's legitimate means to meet those needs. Um, when we're aware of the void, our big temptation is to, I, I want it taken care of my way on my time frame instead of God's way. And and I just I just have to remind myself all the time, the God who created me knows me best. You know, he, he tells us in his word that he's the one who knit us together in our mother's wound. He says he knows the number of hairs on our head. He says he's determined the exact time and place we would be born and live. And he says his plans for us are good. So can I trust that the God who's given me these boundaries and these legitimate ways to fill the needs in my life, that, that he's directing me to good? That's really the, the big question. Well, you, you talked about the, uh, the, the needs, the, the, the different categories. I have an article um, from a biblical counselor named Brad Hambrick, and he, it's called, I don't remember the exact title, but something to the effect of 19 different reasons people turn to porn. And, and he lists 19 different reasons. And for example, people might turn to porn out of boredom. And then they look at porn as their, their friend, their entertainment but Jesus is a better friend. And then the next one might be that people might turn to uh, porn because of stress. And then it's seen as, you know, porn is my, re my relief, my, and, but Jesus is a better relief. 19 different reasons, not one of them is lust, which is pretty interesting, of the different things listed. But you find that, like, there is, there is an illegitimate, all these different ways. I mean, the, the way it might express itself looks common, but our hearts are all looking for different things. And Jesus is the only one who can actually truly give us rest. I, how many of you have taken a vacation or taken a break and you're more tired at the end of the vacation or break than you were at the beginning? Because we don't, we don't know how to rest, but Jesus knows exactly what we need and how to give it. And it's always counterintuitive, but um, yeah. And then um, you mentioned your, about the car manual thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I just bought a new car, and it has a manual that might be bigger than my Bible. It, it's huge, but almost every day for the last week or two, there's some time that I can't figure something out, and I have to go look in that manual. And I think we all understand that. We would do the same thing. You know, there's intuitive in that the person who designed my car and built my car knows better than I do how to maintain my car. I mean, we would all agree with that, right? I would never go fill up with diesel in my car that was made for unleaded. And I think for us, it's to be able to make the shift to the same is true for God, the person who designed you, who created you. He knows what's best for you. He knows what things will tank you, and he knows what things will lead you to wholeness and flourishing. And so can we learn to just see, see sin and obedience in light of that? Yeah, and on the, then on the flip side, there's an enemy that has an agenda with our sin. It's, and it is, it's sinister. And I shared this last time I preached, and if you heard it, you're going to hear it again. But it's the whole uh, picture of how Eskimos catch wolves. I don't know if it's true, but apparently, um, how many of you already heard this? Just 
Okay, yeah. You're going to get to hear it again. Um, they would take a, a knife, dip it in blood, and then let it freeze, dip it in blood again until there's a block of bloody ice around this blade. And they stick it blade up in the snow, and they just leave it alone. Well, a, a wolf is out there wandering with a God-given desire for blood. It smells the blood and the blade, and, and it smells the blood of the blocky, blocky ice. I got to slow down and think before I speak. It smells this blood, and it starts licking the, the ice, and it initially is getting what it's looking for, but as it's getting that, its tongue goes numb, and as it continues to get some of this, it, it doesn't realize that it licks a blade. So this wolf is now licking voraciously and tasting its own blood without realizing it, and it bleeds to death right there by the blade. And that's exactly what the enemy does for us. He looks for what are the legitimate desires that we have, but then he gives it in a way that, yes, initially provides it, but it numbs our heart. We, de we get desensitized to the way we're designed, and we get more excited, we need more, we move quicker, and pretty soon we're bleeding out. And the, um, you take intimacy, like you're designed for intimacy, but there's a legitimate way to go about that that's hard, and it requires being known and letting people see, see and know you, and it takes time and commitment, or you could just cut the corner and get a quick sense of intimacy and begin losing yourself. And having and you lose the very you start to lose yourself in that and that you could take that with any angle and that's what's going on. That's so good and such a gnarly illustration. Um, and Amy, I love the language that I'm picking up from you of just the idea of sin and not sin, but more so brokenness and wholeness and like all the voids that y'all are both talking about and and we're trying to fill something like we feel broken on some level and so we're trying to become whole. And so we turn to things that promise wholeness. And then at least my experience has been, the way I always articulate it, um, is I have found that those things, as I go to them more and more, I crave them more and more, and then they satisfy me less and less. And I find myself stuck in this pattern, though, because it's just like Romans 7 says, I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm doing the very thing that I don't want to do. And I'm licking the blade, and I can't stop. I'm just so entrenched in it, even though I know it's not promoting wholeness. So I'd love for both of you to just speak into that of how do you, how would you help someone walk out of a sin struggle? What's your advice there? A, a sin pattern, habitual sin, um, what's kind of your, your insight there? I would want to be really clear and say that it's not willpower, is not your tool. Willpower plays a role, but I think when you just go with willpower, uh, you're, you have one of t two things is going to happen. Either you're going to try really hard and succeed and become a proud person, looking down on other people who can't quit, or you're going to try really hard with all your might and fail and be really discouraged and depressed. Uh, and those are the two ways willpower alone does. I, God has a prescribed way of breaking us that is actually outlined in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And poor in spirit means like you're, you're spiritually bankrupt. You realize you bring, you bring nothing to the table before God. And then he says, blessed are the meek or the needy, the broken. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You need him. You come to a realization, I need you, Lord. And often our habitual sin or our suffering opens our eyes to how much we need him. And then, blessed are those who, hung, who, who, who mourn, it, where your heart starts to break over what, how God loves me so much, but I keep turning my back on him. And then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he, he does walk his children through a process of being 
broken and needing him. And, but it's, if, you, if I were to sum it up, it looks more like falling more in love with Jesus is ultimately the way out of that. That you can't just fall out of love with sin. You have to fall in love with Jesus. And that's the ultimate way we get broken. Unfortunately, it's not a light switch. I mean, it takes, it's a, it's, it takes things like the means of grace, different spiritual disciplines, but, uh, but it's more than willpower. I'll say that much. Yeah, so I'm going to counter just a little bit. Willpower is a part of it, though. Um, just from a real practical perspective, if the struggle is a sin pattern, a sin habit, uh, then a great first step is replace it with a different habit. And a different habit will require some willpower and, and some effort on your part. So in, in Christian spiritual life, you know, we call these habits spiritual disciplines, uh, spiritual behaviors, and, and these are things Jesus did. And so these are habits. The habit isn't going to change us, but the habit is going to invite God's grace into our sin struggle. So when I say a spiritual habit or a spiritual discipline, I'm talking about either uh, a whole list of things. It could be Bible study, Bible meditation, Bible memory work. It could be prayer. It could be fasting. It could be confession. It could be worship. It's a long, long list. These are things Jesus practiced. And you don't have on your own the ability to change yourself at a heart level. You cannot change your own heart. Only God and God through God's spirit can do that. And so the habit is not actually going to change you, but the habit is inviting God's grace. And grace always means God doing something for us that we can't do for ourselves. So the habit is inviting God into the struggle with you and some things that he might do when he joins you in that, in that habit, he might start diminishing your desire for that sin. He might start showing you the pain attached to that sin. He might start growing love for him more. He might start showing you the impact of that sin on other people. There's all kinds of things God can do that, that works at the soul level of reshaping our heart. And we know that all of our desires and our behaviors come from our heart. And so you can replace a sinful habit with a spiritual habit. And what you're doing, you're inviting God's grace to go to work on you. And he's a God who changes people. So that would be the number one suggestion I would have for someone really trying to break a sin habit. I love the different examples you gave of what that process looks like. I mean, I've seen all of those showing up in different ways in my life. It's not... Uh, uh, I mean, on some, like the mushrooms, he scared the hell out of me, <laughs> you know, in, in a sense. I mean, that's an initial, that's not the typical, you know, but anyway. Yeah, that's really good. Sorry I said hell. Hey, you know, bad you. word. I'm oh, just kidding. Um, okay, I love that. This is kind of get more nuanced and a little more practical maybe. Um, just because, I mean, I went to DCU here and started following Jesus as a college student. Um, and one of the biggest things for me was like the hookup culture at TCU and really just in college in general, that kind of lifestyle is just dialed way up when you're in college and conversations that we all have always revolves around sexual sin. How do we fight it? How do we flee it? What's good? What isn't that kind of thing? Um, I'd love for you guys just to talk about that. Like how do you fight sexual sin and, and the whole spectrum of it too? Um, I'd love to hear, hear y'all's thoughts. This, I mean, this hits close to home for me. I mean, it's been a lifelong struggle. I grew up in a house with, with porn, and um, and to this day, it's still like 
just lust is the medication of choice. When my heart is not, when I'm not walking close with Christ, that's always the, it's not always, but it's commonly that where my heart is, where I'm tempted. And I know that, I remember going through seminary and uh, overhearing a, a person say behind me on my way into chapel uh, that, oh yeah, well, if you struggle with porn, you shouldn't be at seminary. I remember thinking, well, I put all my eggs in this basket. Well, I better nip that in the bud, you know, and stop struggling. And those years when I was at seminary um, were, I've never tried so hard to be pure in my life. And I managed to stay away from the, the lines that I drew. Like, don't look at porn. Okay, I was able to not to look at porn. But my heart was in the gutter a lot, you know, and I was just, my, I was uh, struggling so much and I was doing it by myself because I knew that if I opened up about this, I mean, well, you, I shouldn't be at seminary. I was under this impression. I needed to beat this on my own. So I tried with all my might. And what ended up happening is eventually I, I caved. I just, I fell to it. And then I was doubly determined. I'm not going to fall to this anymore. But that, you know, lasting maybe a, a year or so turned into two months. And then I fell again, turned into a week. And eventually I was just struggling with a double life. Try, and, and on the surface, succeeding. I mean, they were asking me to lead a, a group of men at, at seminary, and I'm making good grades. But in private, I was just struggling and struggling and failing. And the big turning point for me was coming to realize, uh, one, it's impossible for me to do this without being known by other believers. And God, he, it was First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, where, the, where my eyes were opened, that it says, if you walk, if you say you love God, who, who is the light, if you claim that you have fellowship with him and yet you walk in the darkness, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one, with one another and the blood of Jesus covers us from all sin. Translation meaning, if you walk in the darkness, nobody knows you. You're hiding. You're, you're in the corners. But if you walk in the light, you're allowing people to see you as you are. And your covering is actually the blood of Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God and they covered themselves. But when they stepped out, that covering didn't work. But God covered them with the blood, with the, with the, with the animal, with the skins of an animal. The, the first death occurred and it wasn't them. They were supposed to die, but they didn't die. A substitute died in their place. And all this to say, I learned for the first time to trust in Jesus and say, I'm not advertising my righteousness. I'm advertising his righteousness. The reason I can confess my struggles here is because I'm covered by Christ. And when I took that risk and shared, there were seven guys in my accountability group at, at seminary. And the moment I shared, I was thinking, this might get me kicked out. Six of the seven guys said, me too. They were struggling with the same thing. And kind of a revival broke out in our group. But we started finding joy, walking with Jesus, being open about our struggles and our sin. And this is simply just applying confession and accountability. Uh, that was crucial. I still need it to this day. I need regular confession and accountability. I have to know and be known because when I isolate myself, I start plotting. I start scheming. I start hiding eventually. Um, so that's some of the answer. Yeah, I, you know, I think just like um, why do we sin, ultimately we're not trusting that the God who 
fully knows us and fully loves us, is directing us to the best things for us. I think when we, when we try to understand why is God's sexual ethic so different from the world that we live in, and, and let's just acknowledge that. I mean, there's nothing else in the world that is going to direct you the way God does about your sexuality. Um, so, so that makes me want to understand, okay, if God, God made me and he knows what's best for me, what, is, what, is, what did God make sex for? Because God is the creator of all things, and he did create sex. And so that, that makes me go back to what does God say about it. And, and God actually shows us his purpose for it when, when he uses the term one flesh. You know, that, that's what he's talking about. The sexual union is two people becoming one flesh. And that is um, clearly it's a physical one flesh, but it's also an emotional and a spiritual experience. And I think in our culture, that's what we're not always recognizing. So God, who only wants good for us, says that that one flesh experience is only good when it's exclusive and steadfast. And that means with one person in a covenant marriage relationship. That's the way sex is actually a good thing, not a thing that can bring harm to us. And I know the world doesn't think that way, but let me just give you a couple of examples. I've walked with a lot of women for a lot of years. Um, I know a number of women who didn't have a relationship with God till later in their life, um, so God's sexual standard was not their standard. They have shared openly and honestly with me what those experiences were like. And, and they would all say, deep down, even though I didn't care about what God or what he said about this or sin or right or wrong, deep down in every encounter, there was this sense, I think I've given something away that I wasn't supposed to give away. And they would regularly describe to me, um, this is their word, I'm, I'm not putting this word on anyone, but after those experiences, feeling like they walked the walk of shame as they left. Deep down, even though everything in the world says that's freedom, that's good, go enjoy that, they're experiencing something. And here's what they're experiencing. They became one flesh with that person. And one flesh is this bonding. It is an emotional and a spiritual bond that is supposed to stick. But when it's not in a committed, exclusive relationship, you break that bond. And then you form it with another, and you break that bond. A breaking of a bond is a tearing, a ripping, a wounding. God uses the word a rending, like taking a garment and ripping it in half. There is something going on in our emotional and our spiritual life that when we are creating this one flesh experience and then breaking it off, it's harming us. And that's just an emotional and a spiritual reality. I, I will share with you kind of my own experience with that. Um, I'm in my second marriage right now. My first marriage was a failed marriage. Um, I thought it was an exclusive, forever, steadfast marriage. And I thought it was a one flesh marriage. And many, many years into it, I learned that it wasn't. I learned that it had probably never been exclusive. I learned that my spouse had had numerous other one flesh experiences with other people. And I, I don't have language to describe to you what that reality felt like for me, the, the rending, the tearing, the ripping of my heart and my soul on a spiritual level, I don't think words exist for me to be able to describe to you what that felt like. 
But all you can do is feel that and think, this is harm. This isn't good. This isn't what God created me for. And then we can fast forward my story, not only just that harm and that pain of betrayal, but then I had to go sit in a doctor's office and just with humiliation and shame say, I need you to test me for every STD that there is because I have no idea what my body's been exposed to. You know, God says sexual sin is a sin that we actually take into our body, and there are human consequences for that. So if you'll just look at sex outside God's good boundaries, harm, a tearing away of the heart and the spirit, shame, anxiety, worry, physical consequences from the God who says, I have good plans for you. Um, so it's. I just think we have to keep going back to do I trust the God who made me and he made good things and he asked me to keep them in the boundaries because he wants wholeness and flourishing and life for me? That's really the way we understand God's sexual ethic because it's so different than everything else we hear about that today. Yeah, I actually, it's interesting. I, by the way, thank you for sharing that because that's I know that's emotionally costly just to share it. Um, I, uh, you think, on the other side, there there are people who it seems like they're they're getting what they want sexually, and I guess someone who again who struggled with, I grew up looking at porn, and I envied so much these people who seemed to like they just had the life, and it was, um, and and then just recently, I heard a testimony of a guy named Joshua Broom. He spoke at this uh, breakfast prayer breakfast from a ministry called the Net, really powerful ministry, but he's a he was a uh, he's a preacher now, but he was a porn star who actually won like the highest adult star award. Uh, you should be glad that I don't know what it's called. Um, but he he actually shared his testimony that he became a Christian because at the top of his game, um, you know, just living, you can't imagine like getting more of what the world has to offer than this guy. He was absolutely depressed and miserable on drugs and, and uh, he decided to take his life and someone actually used his real name, which was Joshua, you know, and, and uh, when he, and, and he realized that, you know, God was, you know, reaching out to him, and he became a Christian, but he shared a story that most of his friends, like all of his roommates, and uh, they're all dead, and all, the, all these people just who died either of suicide or drug overdoses, because there is a, there's certainly a misery. It's uh, There's an obvious misery to being sinned against sexually, but, but if you can just be on the other side of it, where you could just have what you want, you're being hollowed out and dehumanized by getting what you want. There's a good God who says, this, there's a thing called fire, and I want to put it in the fireplace, not on the couch, you know, because if you light the fire on the couch, it's going to con start consuming everything, and, and yeah, maybe you get an initial warmth, but it destroys. But in the fireplace where there's a context of safety and goodness, it becomes this emotional glue that reaffirms the covenant of marriage, and it's beautiful. And um, yeah, there's so much to say about all of that. But whether you're on the side of being hurt by sexual sin or you feel like you're getting what you want, they both lead to death uh, apart from Jesus. Really sobering and heavy. And thank you both, honestly, for sharing parts of your story that is huge I think for all of us um, I want to wrap this up but I also don't want to cut this conversation short because um, and so I want to end here I 
I mean, just to use me as an example again, I remember starting to follow Jesus in college. I was like a sophomore. Coming to Christ Chapel, hearing things like this, reading my Bible for the first time, reading like how harmful it is. And I was engulfed in the hookup culture and the one flesh and the breaking, like that was just, that's what you do. Um, and for me, hearing that, I would hear these kinds of things and be like, well, crap. Like I, I have done so much, I've caused so much harm on others, on myself, the whole thing. Am I too far gone? Am I too ruined? Um, is there grace for me? Like I've already, you know, I've, I've done those things. Is there hope? And I remember being very, very defeated about it and the whole thing. And I'm, I can imagine this room, that question is being asked too. So the last thing that I want to end on is, Amy, what would you say to the person who thinks I'm too far gone, I'm too ruined, you don't know what I've done, you don't know what's been done to me, what is the one thing that you want them to hear before they walk out of these doors? And Ryan, I'd love for you to answer that, that same question. Yeah, that, that is the question, isn't it? It's a great question. Um, and the truth is, it, it doesn't matter what you've done, every one of us has done something. Um, you know, we, we are all broken people in light of God's perfection and his holiness. None of us measure up to that. But the thing that brings such hope is the, the God of the Bible, all through the Bible, from the very beginning, he uses this similar way of describing himself. He, he's the God who gets close to the brokenhearted and he binds up what's broken. He's the God who gets close to what's injured and he heals it. He uses the word things that are ruined and desolate. He restores them and repairs and replenishes them. He's the God who makes things new. And so we would all be pretty hopeless if that weren't the God of the universe, the God who makes all things new. And he does it through his son. You know, we quote John 3.16 all the time. For God so loved the world, he sent his son, all who believe in him would not perish and have eternal life. And we stop there, but the next verse is so important because it says he didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus so that in his holiness you would feel shame and guilt and desolation. He sent Jesus so you could be saved. He sent Jesus because he is the way to be rid of your guilt and your shame and your desolation in your life. So for all of us, it's this response to what are we going to do about Jesus? Are we going to receive him as the answer that brings us to hope and wholeness and flourishing in life? That's who God is for you. That's who he wants to be in your life is the God who heals and restores. I would never wish anybody to think I'm too far gone on one hand, but on the other hand, it's a prerequisite <laughs> to feel that way because we don't go to Jesus unless we need him. And so I think that sometimes if you feel, I mean, Jesus said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. It's the sick who need a doctor. And we all are sick. And, it, you, and we zoom in on any single person. We all have our own struggles where we know, oh, we feel either I'm too far gone or I've, I've, I'm too much of a, a struggle or whatever. But that prerequisite is that we turn, we recognize that, and then that's where we turn to Jesus. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will by no means turn away, or I will never cast out. There is not a single person who has gone to Jesus that he turned away. It's impossible for him to turn you away. 
So the only unforgivable thing is not to go to him, right? You, you go to him because he promises he will never turn you away. And, and the, uh, the other thing that's just, and, and it still surprises me because I feel like as a pastor, I should have graduated from certain things. I should be past that by now. And I've discovered that his kindness meets me every time. He's, he loves me. He understands me. He's gentle. And when I turn to him, I'm always surprised that these things are still true, you know? Um, I think I'm still a little kid in God's eyes, in, 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 a, in a sense. Um, another thing, and sneak in one more thing. Isaiah 55, uh, verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That, that God is saying that, oh, God's ways are not your ways. I've always, how many of you have heard that verse, you know? Um, that I've always assumed is about God's will, his mysterious will. He's doing things we don't understand. But actually, the context of that verse is this. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. The context is he's saying, hey, sinners, come to me because I'm not like you. My thoughts are not my thoughts, you, your, your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I wouldn't treat you the way you would treat you if you were in my shoes. Does that make sense? Like God is much more merciful and gracious and compassionate and slow to anger than we can ever imagine. And who wants to turn to a God whose arms are folded, shaking his head, disappointed at us? He's not like that. He is not like us. He is gracious, compassionate, gentle, and merciful. If we could see him as he is, I think we would turn to him no matter how far we've fallen. And I think that's the beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection makes a way for us to have a relationship with that kind of God who has compassion and who loves sinners and redeems and restores. And I think of I, two of my favorite verses that come to mind are Romans 8.1. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Like, no matter how far you've been or whatever it is, there's, you are not condemned. And then 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation if you're in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And I think if we can rest in that truth, there's abundant hope. Yeah, I think it's really good. Um, we're kind of out of time, so let's wrap this up. But Amy, to do that, I would love for you to just pray over us as we head out these doors and, um, and yeah, that'd be great. God, you are so good. So we thank you for this time. We thank you that we have your words to show us who you are and help us experience your love. We thank you for sending Jesus who made a way for all of the broken people uh, to be received into relationship with you. We thank you for your spirit that works in us and renews us and restores us each and every day. Lord, I just pray that we would all find ways to keep seeking you, turning towards you, and rest in the promise that you do not turn anyone away. Lord, we want to take steps towards wholeness, towards life, towards things that please you and glorify you, and we need your help. So thank you for your hope. Thank you for your love. Thank you for graciously doing all these things that we cannot do on our own. Help us continue to seek you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.